I'll give you an example. Maybe some of you played this. I think this one, this was a board game in the late 1980s, maybe early 1990s, The Game of Life. It was started by Milton Bradley in 1960. Uh, If you're too young to have ever played this before, I'll explain it to you just briefly. Everyone starts out with a car in The Game of Life. You get a car, and then you spin a wheel in the middle of the board, and whatever the number comes up, you'll you'll move that many spaces um, along the board. And there are very few decisions to be made in the game of life. You have to make one at the beginning of the game, and that is whether or not you're going to go to college. And if you go to college, you get a higher paying job, but you also take on like $40,000 worth of debt. So you have to decide that. And then um, at, at the end of college, you draw your job card. And if you get the lawyer or the doctor card, those are the best. So in the game of life, being the, a lawyer and doctor is best. As you travel to the game... Uh, you fill up your car with plastic, pink plastic pieces, aka baby girls, or, or light blue plastic pieces, baby boys. You enjoy regular paydays, vacations, taxes, and fines, until at the end, you end up, at the very end of the game, you either retire to um, millionaire acres, or you are sent off to, I think it was the poor farm, was the original one you would head to, but nowadays... We can't send anybody to the poor farm, and so it's actually, you retire to countryside estates if you're not a millionaire. My raise of hands, how many of you have played this game before? Okay, almost everyone. Did it ever strike you as strange that the point of the game is this? The point of the game of life is whoever has the most at the end wins. Did that ever strike you as strange? It's just one way that success is being modeled for us. Whoever has the most at the end wins. And then you take the money and you, all, you put it back in the box. And that's the game of life. Well, in today's passage, Jesus tells the story of a man who is by all accounts a successful person. He's a farmer. Um, he, he has a bumper crop. And at the age of, we'll say, 47, he decides, well, I'm just going to retire Because I've had this incredible crop, um, I'll just relax and enjoy the good life. But then one sunny afternoon, a heart attack drops him on the spot and he dies. And what's strange about this story is that God ends up writing the man's obituary. It's a very short obituary. It's two words. You fool. God writes the epitaph on this man's tombstone. You fool. You weren't a success. This isn't success. This is actually abysmal failure. And it's in this shocking way to Jesus' first audience, and even to us today, that he has to speak to us about greed and materialism and the care of the poor. So let's read it from Luke 12, verses 13 through 21 and 33-34. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus replied, Man, who who appointed me to be a judge or an arbiter between you? Then the man said, uh, then Jesus said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. For life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain man yielded an abundant harvest. When he thought to himself, what shall I do? I, I, I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns. And build bigger ones, 
And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. And then he continues the story, 33. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail. Where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. When you read the story, you get the sense that something's going on culturally here that is different than our culture. I mean, after all, what's so bad about asking a rabbi to help with the division of an inheritance? I mean, that was something that rabbis would customarily do in their day. Well, the answer is this. Ordinarily, the eldest brother would have would receive two thirds of an inheritance and then the younger brother would receive one third. So essentially, the elder brother would would have a double portion. And so in this instance, the story that Jesus tells or the situation that Luke tells, rather, the younger brother is convinced that he's being cheated and he asks Jesus to intervene. And Jesus responds um, uh, rather abruptly. And he, he doesn't say, yes, I'll help you. He says what? He says, watch out. Watch out. And uh, that seems like a good first point for the sermon. (laughs) Watch out. Uh, Because greed is the one sin that nobody is aware of, that that they're they're stuck in it. Um, It's interesting when you read the Bible, um, never does the Bible say watch out for theft or watch out for adultery. Because nobody ever says, well, I didn't realize this is, this is not my car that I'm stealing. <laughs> or, or what? You're not my wife. Like, nobody says that. Nobody's surprised by that. Well, watch out for greed. You know, that sin is not obvious. And you probably have heard pastors talk about this before. Like nobody, nobody comes to them and tells them that, uh, you know, the, the, the sin that I'm really struggling with, like my deep, dark, darkest problems are related to my love of money. <laughs> My love of the things that money can buy. Like nobody says one of my three biggest character flaws is I have an excessive love and attachment to wealth and to the things that it can buy me. It's the, it's the sin that goes undiagnosed. Watch out. Ever seen one of these if you're hiking out in the desert before? I'm sure you have. We love to hike over in the McDowell Mountains, and you'll come across these from time to time. They'll tell you that there are rattlesnakes in the area, that this is the you know, rattlesnake habitat, and you need to be on guard to make sure that uh, you, you, know, you don't step on one. Because rattlesnakes, they camouflage very easily. And if you're not paying attention, if you're not watching out, you know, you'll come upon a rattlesnake, and it'll bite you. Here's what I find so fascinating. What is the sign that God gives to say, watch out for greed. Like, does he, is it, you, you know, a hundred dollar bill? Is it, is it a, 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 you know, a pot of gold that the leprechaun sits upon? No, the sign that God gives says at the top warning and underneath it, it <laughs> it's a barn under construction, isn't it? It's a, it's a, it's a barn. 
under construction, this building, this, this bigger barn. What do you think that God may be trying to communicate there? Isn't it, uh, the, the problem with this man isn't his greed in terms of acquisition. It's not like this guy is a railroad tycoon and he's built, or buying up all the land and he's on a shopping spree, just acquiring, acquiring, acquiring. No, the reason, the problem is that this man has achieved things lawfully. It was, it was his land. It was his crop. And yet he wanted to hold it all for himself. He's greedy because he wants to keep all that he has acquired. Um, there was a Christian pastor who was preaching on this passage 1,600 years ago. And he had this incredible observation. And I think if there's one thing I hope you remember from the sermon, it is, it's this one observation of his name was Ambrose. And he, he has this incredible observation. He says, when the farmer says, I don't have enough room to put you know, my bumper crop to store my grain, Ambrose replies, yes, you do. Yes, you do. You could have stored it in the stomachs of the needy, the houses of widows, and the mouths of children. I think that single statement, there's no better summary of a Christian view of wealth than what is articulated right there. Yes, you do. You could have stored it in the stomachs of the needy, the houses of widows, and the mouths of children. You know, partly what's going on, they have a different view of wealth than we do. And this is true of even other parts of the world, that they don't, they see wealth and wealth accumulation differently than people from Europe and Canada and the United States of America. People in other parts of the world believe it is wrong to have a slice of the pie that is too large. But if you have one oversized slice of the pie, it means that there's less of the pie for the rest of us. There's less to go around. But the one who has been blessed materially has a responsibility to share that with a village. Not to hoard it all for themselves. Not to build a massive financial portfolio with the, with the goal of early retirement. The one who is blessed is, is to, it, we must share it with the rest. You must store it in the stomachs of the needy, the houses of widows, and the mouths of children. Instead of building bigger barns, instead of being, instead of being a fool. Watch out. Um, I wish that, number one, I wish that those words scared me more than they do. Um, because it's intended to be scary for us. And yet we read it and like, we don't, when Jesus says, watch out, do you, do you jump? When he says, watch out for greed. Watch out. You're about to head off to college and you're figuring out what, what degree you want to pursue, what kind of vocation you want to pursue. Watch out. Watch out. Why don't we do that for people who are entering law school? Like the watch out course. That's your pre-law uh, training. Watch out. But watch out for greed course. Or, or headed off to med school. You know, watch out. Why don't we even say that to the poor person, the person who's struggling to make it? Who's you know day after day just having to think about where's my food going to come from? Where's how am I going to pay my electricity bill? How many how many get through this? And when you stare into the abyss, the abyss of lack for long enough, it has a way of staring back into you 
And so greed can contaminate you wherever you are, wherever we are on the you know, financial spectrum. Watch out. Number one. Number two. One of the ways to protect yourself from greed is to remember what your money is not. What your money is not. Your money is not yours. Those of you who have been Christians for a long period of time, you, you have heard that you know, ad infinitum from pastors from the pulpit. It's not yours. It belongs to God. I, I love this illustration. It's like a library book. <laughs> Those library books, they're not yours, unless you're going to pay a, a fine. You know, you know when you, when you take, check out a library book, it, it has to be returned. It, it goes back. Um, so hang on to it lightly. Uh, we toss around this word steward, that you are a steward, that you are put in charge of this wealth in order to use it in such a way that the master himself would want it to be used. Because your money is not yours, your money is his. And one of the primary signs of greed that might have come into your mind earlier when I asked you that question is the lottery. Because we all um, have at least run scenarios in our heads where we thought, well, if I won the lottery, I would buy, I would buy this and I would buy that. And, and I would, it, I've, I've always run the scenario, like as a, as a pastor, if I won the lottery, I would give a whole lot of money to the church. I think we've all probably said that. I would give a whole lot of money to the poor. I would give a whole lot of money to this altruistic cause. Until we realize that, well, if I'm not being generous right now with what I have, why would I be generous when I have a whole lot more? Actually generous when I have a whole lot more. You know, a farmer told his pastor that one of his cows had unexpectedly given birth to two calves. And quote, when I sell them, I'll give the proceeds I make to, uh, from one of the calves. I'll, when I sell it, I'll also give the proceeds to the church. Well, a few weeks later, the man um, informs his pastor. He says, oh, I'm so sorry, Reverend. But it turns out um, the Lord's calf died. <laughs> and the Lord's calf is almost always the one that dies. Our, our calf lives. The Lord's calves die. Only they're all the Lord's calves. Your money's not yours. Number two, your money is not you. It's not you. Don't get confused. Like we're always confused. You are not your resume. And you are not how much money you make. And you are not how much you accomplish. And, and you are not you know, how many deals you close. And, and you, are, you, you are not your bank account. And you, that is not you. Even though you're constantly telling yourself that that is you, that is not you. We get confused all the time because we're basing our self-worth on what we do or how much we have. And we have set a trajectory of life where early on you're thinking about career and you got to get into the, well, at least I was doing this to my kids. You got to get into the right school and you got to get into the right grad school and you got to get, you got to, you know, get into Go to law school and graduate at the top of your class. And you gotta, you, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta. No, you don't. Gotta. Your money is not you. In, in success and career that we feel uh, early on in life, it's really, it's really not that important. It's not that big. Thirdly, your money is not trustworthy. And one of the ways you know this is the simple fact that money cannot help you through the most difficult parts of life. It is powerless to help you 
I'll tell you what makes life difficult. These things make life difficult. Tragedies, accidents, sicknesses, broken relationships, and death. And money doesn't, money doesn't do a single thing to keep you from, from, to stop any one of those from happening to you. As a matter of fact, when it comes to broken relationships, money usually enhances the brokenness of our relationship. Your money is not trustworthy. And ordinarily, what we do when we fear the future, when we fear the tragedy, the accident, the sickness, the broken relationship, the death, is we are um, inclined to put our trust in wealth. We trust in our money. We go back to our money. We, we trust in it. But that is to put your confidence in something that will ultimately fail. Like putting your trust in wealth is worthless. We're always being challenged by the Holy Spirit to like make God our portion. Make him our portion because he is our great wealth. Make Christ our portion. The, the resurrection assures us that, that there is... Wealth that can be taken away. Make him our portion. He's our true wealth. Your money is not trustworthy, but he is. Now, let me tell you a quick story. So every summer when we were up in Boise, we would go to the uh, north central Oregon to the Warm Springs tribe. The Warm Springs and the Wasco and the Paiute Native American tribes. They're located in the high desert on the east side of the Cascades. It's like 1,000 square miles, very large area, beautiful, windswept, uh, gorgeous area. This, if you look off you know, here to the east, you'll see Mount Hood. Or rather, no, that's looking to the west from, um, from there. Uh, yeah, beautiful in the rain shadow of the Cascades. And we would partner with a group called Sacred Road Ministries, which worked up with the Warm Spring and worked up in Yakima, uh, a, a wonderfully holistic ministry. So we're there one summer over the 4th of July. And this is one of those moments where uh, culturally I have my stereotypes completely blown because it turns out they actually have 4th of July parades in Warm Springs. It turns out that they even like the pe- visiting pastor to, <laughs> that's me right there with a the camo hat on, the, the, to go on the, the, the parade float, you know, um, and I, I just didn't know what to do with it. You know, I, I couldn't imagine that Native, our first neighbors, would be celebrating the 4th of July. But the reason they do so is because so many of them served in the wars. You know, and they honor warriors in their culture. And, and so they have a really big, you know, red, white, and blue, ticker tape, everything. Um, and it's a moment that I'll never forget in my life, tossing candy off the parade float. We, we go there and we usually work on you know, community development projects. And then we afterwards, in the afternoon, we would go and work with the, uh, uh, what was it? It was a kids group that we worked with. Help me, I'm drawing a blank. Yeah, well, oh, Boys and Girls Club. Thank you. Yes, we do Boys and Girls Club in the afternoon. Um, the, the memory that I'll remember the most is one day I was scraping paint on the side of a longhouse. Longhouse is a tribal community, sacred space. And the Longhouse had not been painted probably for 20 years. So we're, we're scraping paint of the sun. It's noon. The sun is just beating down, baking us. We are exhausted, sweat pouring down our faces. Uh, the Longhouse is, as most of the reservation is, it's, it's in a state of disrepair. 
There's a water fountain inside that that is just running constantly. It, I, I said I went to the, one of the staff members. I said, well, "What can we do?" I tried to fix it. It won't work. They said, "Well, you know, it's been running for six months. Nobody will fix it. Nobody can. Nobody will will fix it." Um, so we're scraping the paint, and one of my dear friends, Jim Winkle, is there with me. He turns to me and he says, "Brad." So this is what the Son of God did for 25 years of his life. It took me a minute to take in what he was saying. This is what the, the Son of God, the Messiah, did for 25 years of his life. Because Jesus, if, if you didn't know, when he came into the world, he was apprenticed as a carpenter. Which meant that he's, he scraped wood. He scraped paint. He, day after day, working with his hands, just... Just scraping and, and cutting. And when the one that, you know, heaven is singing about and all the angels, when that one comes into the world, he's doing rudimentary labor, exhausting work. <clears throat> and this is what was Paul, Paul said about him in Philippians 2, verses 6, 7, and 8. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not... Consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. And taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of a cross. When Jesus decided with the Father that he would come into the world to rescue us, in essence, he took a vow of poverty. I never even thought of it that way before, but this, the salvation of the world project only happens when he takes a vow of poverty. Like it, would, it never would have occurred with him if he lived this like pampered, indulgent life. He says, Father, I will go to this world and I will serve as a servant, but I must go as a poor man. Something that I have I've long had a tremendous amount of respect for are the monks. You know, the monks who themselves take vows of poverty. It's not because I think that the Bible requires that of us. It's just this simple logic that if, if I worship a poor man, and if there's no other way for salvation to take place except through his poverty, then it just makes sense that, that I would be a poor man too. You know, when we think about our wealth, um, and when I think about this church plant, like I, I just have always, I, I, I felt like we, it's important that however we put ourselves out to the rest of the world, it would not be as rich men and women, you know, it would be, it's just authentic men and women who, who don't flaunt whatever wealth they have, but, you know, that we would, we would have a kind of life that, just were to reflect to the world that this man whom we are following was poor? That this man who I say means everything to me, that he was poor. And he cared for the poor. He, and so we give to the poor. We give not only our money, but we give our time and our talents and our treasures. And, and I, I got to tell you, that's, that's really what makes life living. That life. You know, Christianity is the only religion that claims that God and Jesus Christ gave up his wealth, his freedom, his stature, 
so that we can experience the ultimate freedom, freedom from evil and freedom from death itself. And, and when you see how much Jesus gave up to rescue you, when that sets in, when that melts your heart, buying a sailboat to cruise around the Mediterranean, sipping you know, fruity drinks with little umbrellas at the top of it um, every day, like it just no longer appeals to you. If you think that the goal of this life is bigger barns so I can retire and eat, drink, and play shuffleboard and drive a golf cart everywhere and live in a place where the sun always shines, I can retire to a life of self-indulgence, that, that mindset finds no favor in the Bible. It finds no favor with Jesus, none. You know, if you end up making enough money over your lifetime and you reach a point when you, you don't have to punch a time card every day, that's okay. But, but, to set, but to set what we have done in this country, to set this glamorous retirement as the, the purpose and goal of life, that might work for, for not those who are followers of Christ. But it just doesn't sound very appealing when you really look at the cross, when you see the cross. I know it seems inconsistent to me with worshiping a poor man who was crucified who only had one personal possession that he owned when he died. And that was a a tunic, a a shirt that the soldiers took from him afterwards. So watch out. Watch out for greed. Protect yourself from the least bit of greed. What your money is not, it's not yours. It's, uh, It's not you. It's not trustworthy. I appreciated, Lizzie, you reading the passage, and I just want to come back to it again because that passage was so pregnant with meaning. It says, command those who are rich in this present world, and that's us, isn't it? Because we are, do we have the toilet? Do we have running water? Do we have electricity? Yes, yes, yes. We're rich. We're so much richer than the rest of the world. Command those who are rich in this present world to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment, And command them to do good and to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. And this way they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Give it away. That's what Paul is saying. That's what Jesus is saying. Give it away. The best way to break money's power over us is through giving lots of it away. The best way to break greed's allure in us is to give lots and lots of it away, to give it generously, to give it cheerfully, and to give it quickly. You know how he says, like, um, do not lay up treasure for yourself on earth. And one of the translations says, where moth and rust destroy. In other words, like, don't let your, your wealth rust. Don't let your wealth sit there. Don't let it, don't let the rain fall on it and it oxidize. You've got to move it. You've got to move it quickly. Give it generously. Give it cheerfully. Give it quickly. And so philosophers have this fancy pantsy term used to describe a profound change that occurs in, in a person's thinking. And I, I want to close with this, but they call it a paradigm shift. 
It's when previously someone sees the world through one lens and then usually quite suddenly due to a powerful experience in their life, it changes the way they think and and then view everything else. A paradigm shift happens like the a massive paradigm shift needs to happen in the United States church today. And it happens when you realize that the game of life is is wrong on a number of fronts. Number one, not everybody starts out with a car. (laughs) Number two, not everybody gets the opportunity to choose college or choose this or that. Number three, you don't win if you have the most in the end. And number four, and this is the one I hope you get, It doesn't all go back in the box at the end. That's what he said in verse 33. It doesn't all go back in the box in the end. Most of it goes back in the box, but not all of it. He says, sell your possessions and give to charity and make make yourself bunny belts, which do not wear out an unfailing treasure in heaven. Where no thief comes near, nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Somehow you can um, you know, pay it forward, <laughs> pay it up there, pay it into the new creation, pay it into the new world. Um, and do it, friends, do it not, um, you know, not out of a sense of guilt. I hope I haven't guilted you this morning or this afternoon. Um, we love because he first loved us. And we give because he first he gave everything for us. And we continue to give because he continues to lavishly give to us. And he loves to give to those who will give in return. It seems like he, he just pours more into the laps of the generous so that they will be good to move it on to others. Where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Amen.